Hello and welcome to PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Harditz, and today we'll be catching up on some of the top news uh, from training camp. I hope everyone's uh, fantasy football drafts have been going well. If you still have them, you know, make sure to check out all the content we're offering at pff.com. I have plenty of stuff coming out day by day. But look, we got to adjust the heavy influx of news that has come in over the last few weeks. I mean, long portion of this offseason where just nothing was happening. That has not been the case recently. So have a very special guest today to break down some of these keynotes from the past few weeks. California's finest and all-around sharp football guy, Roto World's own Hayden Winks. Hayden, how's it going, man? I'm good. I'm so excited for the season. We've been grinding this, uh, doing previews like for about six months now. So now we're like finally itching towards where we're going to talk about matchups and the, and the good parts of the NFL season. For sure, man. I mean, people like to hate on preseason football. I never want to hear any of that slander again after this uh, offseason's over. So, look, man, I woke up at 8.20 a.m. today, looked at my phone, and I, I just smiled. Like, I was so happy to start my day. And that was because the Jaguars released Leonard Fournette. Now, I'm not trying to trample on, you know, a human being losing his job. That's not cool. But, you know, this has been something that us in the fantasy industry have been barking about, arguing about for months and, you know, everyone listening to this podcast, you guys know, we've been pleading for you, do not draft someone that risky in the top three rounds. You know, hopefully Fournette goes and has a great rest of his career, continues to make millions and millions of dollars. But we have to adjust the ranks, as the cool kids like to say. So, Hayden, is there another landing spot anywhere in the league that you see Fournette even coming close to having the same ceiling as he did in Jacksonville? I think the touches are long gone. I didn't even think he was going to get the touches in Jacksonville like uh, he, he had last year. Um, the teams basically admitted that they don't view Leonard Fournette as a centerpiece anymore. Nobody was willing to give up a seventh round pick during the draft. Nobody was willing to do it during the summer. So I, even if he does land somewhere where we think it's a good spot, I think they're doing it as like a depth piece, not as a featured back. So I don't, I don't see a single landing spot where I'd be wanting to draft in like the first seven, eight rounds at least. I, if, if, if I was drafting tonight, I probably wouldn't draft him until double digit rounds. And that's the point. I mean, they tra- tried to trade him for months. Now, I understand a part of that could be with the $4 million price tag, but even that in, in and of itself, like that shouldn't have been prohibiting these teams from getting the guy that they would want. So I, I tried to go through all 32 teams and see, like, could this be a realistic fit and would this scare me if I'm a fantasy fader? And I think teams that maybe could sign him include the Rams, 49ers, Falcons, Buccaneers, Bears, Washington, uh, the Eagles, and the Chiefs. Now, we can argue those points. I know there's been reports coming out that, you know, the Chiefs aren't interested as it is. But to me, the only two places that he could realistically go where I would be like, huh, he might still impact us here in 2020 are the 49ers or Chiefs. Do you think there's really anywhere else where you're even going to care that much about him in fantasy? Probably not. I think maybe there'd be like some landing spot where he like maybe the bears or somebody takes him and he's like, has like some weeks where if Montgomery misses the first couple of games where he um, has some startable weeks, but yeah, I don't know. It's looking bad for, for old Lenny. <laughs> it's certainly not looking good. All right. Let's, let's look at the Jaguars side of things here because you know, everyone rushed out, try to say, Oh, Hey, we got to get the divino Zigbo. I know that's a mutual friend of the pod. Josh Norris is, you know, he's, he's been running that fan club for a long time. So very happy for you, you and your uh, fellow members, Josh. We also got Reichpo Armstead there. And you know, the guy that's kind of been the thorn in Fournette was going to be the thorn in Fournette side for the whole season. Chris Thompson, obviously with the pass down, uh, pass down back. Hayden, what do you think about this backfield? And do any are you like lining up to sign any of these guys in fantasy? Well, 30 minutes before this podcast, Ian, I went to the week 17 NFL game pass. I looked at Jaguars versus Colts, 
and I watched Reichwell and Divino Zigbo, and I was uninspired by both of them. I don't, I just don't think there's there's going to be a role uh, for either of them. I think that Chris Thompson probably is going to end up as the um, has the most fantasy points among the Jaguars' backfields. But even then, that's probably like an RB three, RB four, like the best of best of weeks. So it's probably the answer is nobody. But if I had to pick one, it's probably Divino Zigbo who. Probably most homelies, they don't even, they've never even heard that name before. <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, okay, if we're talking like a 16-team league or a dynasty, okay, you can make some, you know, uh, ads and drops at the end of your bench. But I don't think many people in most redraft leagues are – like their worst running back is probably better than either of these guys' situation right now. All these yeah. issues that got us off Fournette in the first place still apply. We still have a league-worst 4.5 win total. Awful offensive line. Man, I, I hope – I'm praying Gardner Minshew works out this year, but he's still anyone's idea of an unproven QB. Sporadic front office, awful defense. Hell, man, maybe even like LaVisca Chenault ends up getting like some sort of a rushing role to help uh, shave away carries. So, to me, yeah, it seems like a two is going to be Armstead, a Zigbo kind of splitting the early down work with uh, Thompson commanding the pass downs. Maybe someone takes over, but I think this is a good lesson that, you know, you can't just look at depth charts around the league, look at the RB2 and assume they're going to get the same role as the RB1 when they uh, disappear. I mean, look, I still want guys like, you know, Justin Jackson, Adrian, even like Adrian Peterson, Naeem Hines. I want these guys over these unproven Jaguars assets because the role seems, you know, already like who knows. And as you were saying, the talent isn't exactly there either. Yeah, and I think I think you'll like hearing this. I think the Jaguars are going to pass the ball more, and I think Gardner Minshew to DJ Chark is actually the the two biggest beneficiaries of this. I think that they were 30th in neutral situation offensive pace. They were 22nd in neutral situation pass rate. I think both of those numbers go up. I think we're going to see Gardner Minshew actually run the ball even more so than last year, and he was already a sneaky guy. I have him inside my top 20 fantasy quarterbacks just because I think that the rushing opportunity is going to be there for for Gardner Minshew. I mean, he's good. He has like, I mean, he un unfortunately has like no shot here uh, to have like sustained success. But I think that as, as a fantasy quarterback, he's going to be running around a lot and he'll be taking those deep, deep shots. I think that the receiving uh, depth charts a little bit better than people are giving him credit for. I think LaVisca Chenault is going to be a real, a real player here. Yeah, I have Gardner 18th, moved him ahead of Teddy and Mossberger over the last few weeks. That rushing floor is legit, fifth in the NFL and rushing yards last year. I mean, I've been trying to make the comparison that Gardner could have a 2019 Fitzpatrick, you know, DGAF-esque season. And, you know, the big thing with Fitzpatrick we talked about last year was how he low-key led the Dolphins in rushing. Not Wouldn't be the strangest thing to happen in 2020 if Gardner Minshew uh, leads the Jaguars in rushing. So, all right, we got that one out of the way. Again, this, that news hit this morning, so I wanted to t touch on it. But but yeah, in general, I would say the answer to which RB you should, uh, you know, pick up from the Jaguars is just going to be a no. Maybe Chris Thompson, you know, puts together some major plus target weeks early on. But to me, like, I didn't even adjust his ranking because we are, like, he's not changing. He's a pass down back, doesn't really have that three down back ceiling. Maybe they play from behind. Maybe he stays healthy, but still a lot of uh, questions with him as well. So moving on to our regularly, regularly scheduled programming, I will talk about some of the key training camp notes from around the league over the past few weeks. So first up, with the Broncos, Coach Vic Fangio said he anticipates both Melvin Gordon and Philip Lindsay playing enough to where they don't have to designate a starter. So it appears, you know, the potential Pat Shermer workhorse role that some thought was a possibility for Gordon out of the picture. But, I mean, I'd still say he's the favorite to lead the way in touches, particularly targets. Hayden, I know you're an MG3 stand. I agree with you that he's not washed. And, you know, he is – when he's on, like he's one of the better ball carriers in the league with the ball in his hands. What are your thoughts on this Denver backfield? 
Well, he's just physically impressive. And what, what's so crazy about this, he has like 25 pounds on uh, Philip Lindsay. So I think we're, we can agree that he's going to be the goal line back. But he's also the better receiver. Like he has, he's had been like twice as productive from a yards per receiving game uh, situation over their careers compared to Philip Lindsay. So I think that maybe Philip Lindsay uh, has like eight to 12 carries, but they're going to be the low value carries that we don't really care about, care about between the twenties. And then uh, Melvin Gordon's going to actually have the carries that we do do like near the goal line and then also get these receptions. So He's going to be like a uh, like an every week RB2. I don't really see it going higher than that just because there's some questions about the offense. And there are a lot of guys that deserve some touches in this offense. And then maybe Philip Lindsay has a couple of weeks where he breaks off a long run. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think too much has changed. I mean, the, the Broncos gave uh, Melvin Gordon $16 million, 13 of that uh, guaranteed over two years. So they're going to be using him a lot, even if they don't designate him as the starter. I think that the situation, to me at least, is pretty clear. Philip Lindsay – eight to 12, maybe 14 touches a game, but Melvin Gordon gets the truly valuable 15 touches per game. Yeah, I think that's fair all the way around. I mean, Lindsey has never quite been all that great of a pass down RB. And, you know, Gordon, he's missed time over the, uh, you know, in a couple seasons over the years. But if he hadn't of, I mean, he was on pace to go 50 catches in, you know, four consecutive seasons. So even if he's not Austin Eckler, Melvin Gordon is a plus uh, pass down back. But, yeah, it's a good reminder that, you know, in these situations where you have an incumbent talent like a Philip Lindsey, I think Marlon Mack and even maybe on Johnson applies too. Like, it's really tough to assume that the new guy, whether it's a rookie or in this case Melvin Gordon can come in there and completely take over the show I think in this case their skill sets and the money at hand you know are going to lead to Gordon getting plenty of run but I mean it's just one of those things that we got to keep in mind that you know not everything's going to work out in the best way that us fantasy managers would appreciate so I have Gordon RB 16 one spot behind James Conner I think there's kind of a tier drop off there though I mean I've mostly been trying to get some of these top 14 RBs and then you know Conner if he's there in round three and then I'm kind of taking stud wide receivers once it comes time uh, to get to Melvin Gordon have you just throughout best balls and stuff throughout the offseason Hayden like have you actively been getting Gordon on your teams or are you usually kind of taking wide receivers in that range I haven't checked this but I would guess I have zero shares of Melvin Gordon it's just it's the it's the wide receivers like you said like historically if you look at these ranges where the running backs go these RB2 um, where they're drafted these guys bust at a much higher rate than the wide receivers at similar ADPs and I think in particular this year the RBs have a lot of question mark, whether it's age, injuries, kind of uh, how big their role is going to be. And the wide receivers are like either the um, emerging number one talents uh, on their team or they're like the stud number two guys that we know that the their target volume is going to be there. So give me the Calvin Ridleys and the DJ Charks in this range over Melvin Gordon. Yeah, definitely. I, I know I've I know I said on this podcast, there's like 50 or 60 wide receivers you can talk yourself into this year. And, you know, if we want to talk about legit, like a wide receiver one or just, you know, a high upside wide receiver two, it's not 50 or 60, but it is legitimately about 30, you know, to 35. And again, at running back, I think we see a pretty steep drop off after that 14 or 15 mark. So again, that's why, you know, we've been preaching this whole time, you know, go get you that stud one, maybe even two RBs in those first two rounds and then turn around and get those remaining wide receivers. So another backfield that we have some uh, concern on with the pecking order, and that's the Detroit Lions. DeAndre Swift and Karon Johnson reportedly expected to form a committee, which we expected. I'm still a little skeptical if we see it's just those two. That'd be great for fantasy, but, you know, we've seen Ty Johnson, Bo Scarborough stay involved last four weeks of last, last two weeks of last season, excuse me. We saw a four-back committee, so I'm not sure. And Swift's lower body injury certainly isn't helping matters, but but let's say, you know, Swift is able to at least be on the field by week one. 
How are you approaching this Detroit backfield, knowing that we're going to have multiple backs, but also knowing that Swift should be the lead pass down guy? Yeah, I think just like from a tape perspective, I think that we can all agree that DeAndre Swift has more juice and he's definitely better as a receiver. But it's kind of like the, the Denver backfield situation where I think that there's defined roles, but both of them have roles and that kind of limits their true upside, especially with the, the lines. This is going to be a very pass-heavy attack. We saw what Matthew Stafford did through the first eight weeks of the year. So I think probably week one, just because DeAndre Swift has missed a lot of the training camp, that he'll be the um, early down grinder, probably see 12 to 14 touches with kind of earning his earning his role as a, as a third down back but I'm not really convinced that either of them are going to have RB2 status like for the first like three four five six weeks yeah it was interesting I was I was working on an article uh, yesterday where I looked at the biggest difference in a projected volume versus ADP and I, I weighted the targets you know higher than the rush attempts to uh, kind of figure that out with the RBs but Swift was one that was actually popping a little bit and you know he was he came in 30th in ADP but actually 18th in projected volume I think the PFF you know projections maybe being a little generous with his potential target but he is one of these guys that you know again if he gets right gets healthy could have 50 plus targets 50 plus receptions no question asked and I mean you know I've been trying to just explain how big of an advantage that is in PPR I mean imagine like if a rush attempt just started 10 yards downfield every single play that's the advantage you're getting when these guys just make an easy catch is that reflective of you know rewarding the best football players probably not but it's you know kind of a glitch in the matrix of fantasy football scoring so I think I'm a little higher on Swift even despite this injury thing as uh, things continue to unfold because it does seem like that he is truly there's the outright best talent in this backfield I mean this quote from carry on Johnson himself just has me cracking up this so carry on I can't learn anything from Swift because the way Swift's knees bend and hips work, I can't do any of that. So when he comes up and does his little, know what I'm saying, his little shaky fake, whatever thing, I can't do that. So I just say, good job. Like, I don't want to say carry on's resigned that he lost his competition, but <laughs> if carry on knows is that man, I'm sure the Detroit coaches do. Yeah, definitely. Did you see the Marlon Mack one? He had a very similar one talking about Jonathan Taylor, just how like physically gifted he is. So that was all. That, it's pretty funny to see to see a, a true like carry on Johnson and Marlon Mack are like legit NFL players, and they're already just admitting that the guys that were drafted in the second round are better than them. It's pretty funny to see. Um, yeah, man. Like, I hate when us fantasy analysts, you know, make these overarching you know assessments about a guy's athleticism or you know comp him to some all pro. But when it's the players themselves doing it, I feel like we gotta at least listen to it a little bit. So. All right, another committee that's been uh, kind of switching up a little bit during training camp, and that's the Patriots. Uh, Damian Harris just reportedly been balling out uh, throughout Patriots camp. I mean, can't read one of those kind of practice reviews without hearing about Harris, you know, just busting off one big run after another seemingly. But Sonny Michel, who was on the pup list with a foot injury, you know, he's already had the chronic knee issues, now he's a foot. He has been back and reportedly has been splitting reps at practice with the first team with Harris. We know James White and Rex Burkhead are going to kind of have their pass down roles regardless of what happens. Are you all that excited about the fantasy, fantasy potential of either Harris or Sony? Well, we also have to look at this is a potential Leonard Fournette landing spot. I, I, I'm not going to be making predictions, but this is like one of the, the reported things where he might end up. But yeah, I was really excited to get Damian Harris like in the top 150 and like start targeting him in like the 11th round. And then Sony Michelle comes back and then he immediately goes and works with the first team. So I thought that Michelle was going to possibly miss like six games. That, is, that definitely appears not to be the case here. I think that Sony's probably borderline washed here. And I don't think Damian Harris is like a true, like gifted talent. I think he's like really reliable, but I'm not sure if he's going to be like breaking off big runs either. 
I think they'll probably just uh, split the backfield early on. They'll probably have a winner by like week five or week six, and then we'll we'll know then. But yeah, for for right now, it's just James White as a as a flex play. Um, I mean, the Patriots do not have many uh, receiving weapons right now, so I think that James White is going to be in play for another 60, 70 catches this year. So he would be like a low end flex guy for PPR leagues, and then Damian Harris and Sonny Michelle are. Definitely double-digit round guys, um, and I would certainly be drafting Damian Harris over Sony Michelle just because we know what Sony Michelle is. Maybe Damian Harris surprises us and uh, does more than what Sony Michelle did these last couple of years. I think the 60-70 catches for James White is fair. I've seen some people, you know, wondering if okay, I'll look at what Cam Newton fed Christian McCaffrey in 2018. Why can't White get that? I think the presence of Burkhead is actually a bigger issue than people are kind of thinking about because we have fairly, you know, at least 15 game plus splits both sides for James White with and without Burkhead over these past three seasons. With Burkhead, James White averages 5.4 targets per game, 12 points per reception per game. Without, it booms up to 8.6 targets per game and 16.6 points per reception. So I guess, Hayden, like what's your projected pecking order in this offense, you know, including the wide receivers? Because I think White will certainly be involved, but I'm just wondering kind of where he stacks up relative to Edelman and them. Yeah, so I think Edelman's like the one guy that is like for sure ingrained as like the number one. I think that James White and I, I've kind of been warming up to Mohamed Sanu, who like actually got some volume before he hurt his ankle, like basically immediately. I think that they're going to try to get Mohamed Sanu a little more involved. But I think the Patriots, they invested a ton into their interior offensive line. I think that there's a chance that they just go old school football here with Cam Newton. They're going to run the ball a lot. And that's just going to be end up being uh, Julian Edelman, James White, and then maybe you'll get some Nikhil Harry red zone targets. Maybe you'll get Mohamed Sanu with like five or six or seven targets per game. And then after that, it's just kind of kind of useless. So like, unfortunately, this is this is an offense that we usually want to be targeting. Like last year, even the Patriots were second in PPR points among their running backs. But I just don't know how you are going to be able to decipher this situation going into week one, especially without training camp uh, or with preseason games. So yeah, I think it's just James White and Julian Edelman for me. Yeah, I was really hoping to be able to use Harris early on in the season. I mean, they get the Dolphins, the Seahawks, the Raiders, and the Chiefs weeks one through four. I mean, one of the uh, just small stretches of the season we highlighted on the strength of schedule pod, things Damon Harris can do. But, I mean, now, assuming that Sony, Harris, Burkett, and White are all active week one, I think it's a stay away uh, for fantasy purposes, and at least until week two. And even then, I agree with you, Hayden. I think it's probably going to be until week four or five, until we have any sense of idea what's going on in New England, which we never really do, but this season just seems more complicated than ever. All right, another situation that is seemingly – more complicated, but it's starting to actually clear up. So Daryl Henderson, you know, was looking all sorts of swaggy in practice with his visor, but he hurt his hamstring. So he is, you know, probably he's looking iffy for the first week of the season. Sounds like an issue that could honestly keep him out a couple games. So Cam Akers show, maybe I'm kind of thinking so, man. I mean, we've heard from the reports all throughout the off season that, okay, you know, McVay's happy to have four good running backs, but you know, you look Stop. at the Rams over the past three years <laughs> with or without Gurley, he's leaned on one guy, you know, CJ Anderson or Malcolm Brown last year when Gurley was out. Do you think Cam Akers has a, you know, we'll say 60% plus workload snap wise as early as week one? Maybe week one's aggressive. I think Darrell Henderson, they're expecting that he's going to be back for week one. But him missing time definitely opens up Cam Akers for like a bigger role early on in the season. So maybe it's a situation where they give like Malcolm Brown some veteran touches randomly and then Darrell Henderson mixes in. But I'm with you. I think that Akers uh, probably going to get a three down role or at least a really strong two down role um, 
I mean, easily before the midpoint of the season. The thing I kept going back to is I looked at pass blocking reps. And I, I think this is kind of overrated in general, but Todd Gurley led the NFL running backs in pass blocking reps last year. He, his absence opens up a major, major role. And Darrell Henderson was horrible at pass blocking in college. And they only gave him six snaps as a pass blocker last year. I don't think that they trust Darrell Henderson in a pass protection role. And Cam Akers, out of all college running backs last year, finished third in pass blocking reps. I think that that just guarantees that he's going to be on the field uh, on third downs in passing roles. And I think that the Rams are going to have to pass the ball a ton this year just because uh, the defense maybe not be is going to be as strong and lose some touches from Todd Gurley that they're going to be wanting to pass the ball more. I think that Cam Akers is going to be somebody that could be getting more receiving volume than we've expected just because he's going to be on the field because he's the better pass protector. Yeah, after uh, Akers was drafted, the PFF quick hit at Scouting Report was that Akers has the physical profile that tends to succeed in the NFL, and he's also already used to running behind rough offensive lines. Yeah. <laughs> Hayden, I know, I know, you know, you do a ton of great pre-draft research every single year. You look at the tape and the analytics side of things, you know, try to come up with a model that incorporates all that into kind of, you know, one score. Where do you have Akers among the running backs, you know, before uh, the actual fit in the landing team uh, came to fruition? Yeah, so there was basically the top five, and it was, it was the top five guys that were drafted in, and they were all very strong prospects, like 90th percentile or above prospects. And I think that the, this the situation isn't as bad as what some people are, are talking about. The offensive line is is not great, but the the Rams play with a lot of pace, especially when they're trailing. I think they were first in offensive pace when they're trailing, and they pass the ball a lot when they're trailing. So I do think that Cam Akers might have more receiving work than we're giving them credit for. I have him kind of build in this like RB3 territory we're in drafts right now, where I think that he's probably gonna be a flex play early, but he could develop into an RB2. And I think that his price tag in like the fifth or sixth round is, is perfectly fine. He's one of the only running backs in that range where I'm actually willing to pull the trigger on. So I think that Cam Akers is, was pretty good at Florida State. Um, he was really young and he uh, declared early. And those are like the two biggest indicators that you have along with draft capital second round. So he kind of ch checked a lot of boxes, ru rushing, receiving, um, draft capital and an early declare. So I think he's going to be a, a pretty solid player. Good stuff all around, man. I can echo those statements, you know, just about his all-around game from, you know, the 10 minutes of college highlights I've seen the guy have. <laughs> he looks good out there, dude, making one-handed catches in traffic. I mean, it does, you know, it does seem like that he can be that three-down guy if that's what they want him to be. And, hey, you know, if Henderson is not there, hand might be forced sooner rather than later. So, all right, more rookie talk. Now, with the Raiders, you know, one of the more talked about wide receiver rooms really of the offseason. So we have Henry Ruggs, who I think was always pretty much slotted to start, you know, in that Z spot uh, from day one. Now, Brian Edwards is the one that's coming on strong. I mean, half of Raiders Nation seems to think that he's the wide receiver one, which I think is going a little crazy. But, you know, I do recognize that he largely fell in the draft more due to injury concerns that are no longer present. The big news here is that Tyrell Williams suffered a torn labrum. He's going to try to play through it. But, you know, Edwards having a big camp and we, we know it's just, you know, it's tough to play tough to play through these things so what do you make of the uh, Raiders kind of wide receiver room and what are your expectations for early in the season this whole situation was making me so mad there was such bad reporting like when Brian Edwards was slated to start the starting lineup was like featuring basically a bunch of backups so it was like so disingenuous. yeah it was so <laughs> disingenuous uh, Brian Edwards was never projected as a three uh, starting receiver and three wide receiver sets it was always Tyra Williams at the X Henry Ruggs at the Z and then Hunter Renfro in the slot. And then maybe we get Ruggs in the slot a, a little more and maybe they mix it up 
So Brian Edwards is not going to happen until Tyrell Williams bangs up his shoulder. And this is a very high injury risk uh, situation here. The catch radius is not going to be there. And we've seen Tyrell Williams just completely go non-existent with an injury before last year. He was just basically running clear out routes with no targets and just no volume. So I think Henry Ruggs is the only guy that I truly care about. I think they're going to scheme him open touches. I think that he's really underrated, like underneath. I mean, this guy is a really good a route runner with with slants, crossers, these underneath routes where he can just catch the ball and then finally use his 4-3 speed to get open. And I think that he's actually a good fit with Derek Carr, who doesn't like to throw open uh, receivers. He's waiting for somebody to be open. I think that Henry Ruggs is the type of guy that's going to create separation underneath, and Derek Carr is going to be actually throwing him the ball because he's so reserved. But I think that this is actually a good scheme fit for Henry Ruggs and I think that he's going to be a flex option early as the only guy outside of Darren Waller who like I'm very very confident that he's going to be getting at least five six seven targets per game yeah I've, I've maintained Ruggs as this uh this year's rookie wide receiver one I mean obviously now that Jalen Rager injury is going to make that I think more of a consensus than it was otherwise but yeah dude number one receiver in college football last season you know and passer rating when targeted I think it's a lazy and just you know flat out wrong kind of idea to suggest that he's not going to be a good fit with Derek Carr just because Carr doesn't throw downfield a lot and you know Ruggs has this speed I mean he's not a one-trick pony field stretcher he does you know slots crossers screens all that and you know if you watch some of the Raiders games last year I mean they were actually one of the best teams in the league in EPA on like the first 15 20 plays the game when things were scripted i mean john gruden you know say we will about some of the guys personnel moves but he was actually still scripting up some you know serious goodness for his wide receivers things you know wouldn't usually persist for all 60 minutes but you know i think it's a situation where we could see you know the raiders get back to not featuring the tight end but actually featuring an alpha wide receiver one that like we saw gruden do for most of the first part of his career you know with the raiders first with tim brown jerry rice and then tampa bay joey galloway keenan mccardell all those guys i mean do you think rugs or Waller ultimately leads his team of targets. That's tough. I, I would probably go rugs, but I, I, I think Waller's going to get the, the target volume that we're looking for, for like a mid range tight end one. I wouldn't be like drafting him in the fifth round where he's kind of going. Um, but I think he's going to be a mid range tight end one, but the, the Raiders have the third hardest schedule in the league. I mean, look, they're going to be playing some games against the chiefs where they're going to be really trailing. I think that their pass attempts are going to go up. And also there's like finally pressure on Derek Carr to like actually come out of his shelf just because at least Marcus Mariota is behind him. Maybe we see them like extend their passing game where it's a, a little more creative. They get Derek Carr to actually make throws. He's not throwing the ball away at the goal line on fourth down again. And we kind of see Henry Ruggs start really balling out. And my, my last little rant is the analytics community did not like Henry Ruggs just because of his production. But when you have first round draft capital, first of all, that matters a lot. Plus they had, uh, he was an early declarer. He was young. He was productive for multiple seasons. But the other thing is nobody's adjusting for um, how good a team is. And we see, we see this all the time with Ohio State. And so I'm not saying like making adjustments for like Illinois, like just, just because they're a power five school. I'm talking about like elite programs. We have to make an adjustment just because there's so many guys that, that have the ball uh, like, that deserve touches. And I mean, Michael Thomas was this way. Obviously we saw this with Scary Terry last season as well. So I think that Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, these guys, if we don't like their production all the way, I think that's totally fine just because the competition was there. I think that Henry Ruggs was completely flying under the radar in the analytics community. And I think that Henry Ruggs, as the rookie wide receiver one, will show that we need to make adjustments for how good 
the college team that they were on. I mean, I get it. February through April, everyone's studying these rookies. You have three months to focus on these guys. But, yeah, man, we got to adjust when we get new information. When we find out the Raiders like this guy enough to make him the 12th overall pick in the draft, that should mean something. That should mean more than whatever you, you know, happen to put, whatever film you happen to watch, whatever decisions you have to make, it ultimately comes down to how that player's team thinks of them. So, you know, it's all good information. We're all getting smarter throughout the process. But, yeah, man, I think, you know, being willing to, you know, have these different ideas as we get more information, it's smart in football and smart in life. So, all right. Hey, Ian, and the, the other in- information we got with, with Henry Ruggs, we saw that mixtape of him dunking on everybody in high <laughs> yeah. school. I mean, if you see those dunks and you're not making some adjustments, what is wrong with you? Have some fun. I had a, the, the ringers Danny Kelly on the pod last week, and we were doing like our 10 fantasy football draft commandments. And his last one was kind of a joke, but he was like, I want guys that can dunk. Like, he's like, if, if you yes. can dunk, that means you're a superior athlete. And he's like, you know, I'm half kidding, but – I know what he's saying, man. Like you see these guys just making, moving differently as an athlete. And it's like, all right, you know what? Get that guy on my team. All right. Moving on wide receivers for the Pittsburgh Steelers this time. So last time we saw Ben Rossberger healthy, man, threw for 5,000 yards, enabled AB and Juju to plenty of fantasy success. He's apparently looking quite healthy in a training camp. So, you know, it's one of these things where all the Steelers skill position players, Connor, AB, Deontay, I'm even Washington, Claypool, if you want to go there, Ebron, they've all been, you know, kind of middly ranked because we realize what happens if Rossberger goes down, we're getting the Rudolph and Duck experience again, like not good for anybody, but Rossberger stays healthy. We're looking at anyone's idea of probably a top 10, 12 offense at worst. What are you making these steel position players right now? And have you like moved them up your board, your ranks at all, you know, knowing that Rossberger is actually in a good place following that elbow surgery? I think the I was the biggest fish with uh, these Steelers rankings initially. I probably had them way too low. I was just not convinced that a 38-year-old quarterback coming off Tommy John surgery, like legit Tommy John surgery, was going to be able to come into training camp and show that he was ready. But all reports that he looks he looks strong. So I, I have moved him up a little bit. Like, wide receivers I think big bands like in that like mid-tier QB2 range and then I've kind of been warming up to even Deontay Johnson um but yeah the the one thing I want to be careful of and I think that I've seen this a little bit is uh people kind of copy pasting the 28 18 stats onto this offense and the Steelers defense is better and Antonio Brown is gone so I don't want to be doing that and I also don't do not want to be saying we were drafting Juju as the wide receiver six. So he did, deserves to be the wide receiver six just because that's where we were going to have him last year without Big Ben. No, we got new information. Like Big Ben's injury risk is actually higher now than it was last year. We have to make these adjustments. So I don't want to go all the way in, but I do agree that I think I was probably too low initially and that these guys are actually going to have provide some value at where they've been drafting recently. But um, yeah, this is this kind of the biggest decision is what to do with Big Ben. I, I don't really have a good take either way, honestly. I feel like if you just look at him, I mean, Juju is one that's already being priced relatively close to his ceiling. I mean, I think Deontay Johnson is the guy that I've continuously targeted and will continue to do so. It was concerning he was missing a little bit of a training camp time uh, due to injury, but he was already back at practice last week, seemingly good to go for week one. And look, man, I mean, we have an average of, you know, since 2010, 4.3, you know, pairs of teammates per year finish as top 24 wide receivers. I think Pittsburgh can absolutely be one of those. Yeah. Expecting both these guys to post, you know, 
top six production like Juju and AB did? I don't think so. And, you know, you brought up the reasons why. But, yeah, so Juju, who should get the target, should get some numbers. I wonder if he can be, you know, true wide receiver one. Deontay is the one where, look, he's gone outside the top 30. Definitely a strong chance to finish inside the top 30. What are your thoughts on James Conner, though? Because to me, he looks like the cheapest kind of three-down featured back we know there's, you know, a little more injury risk than normal because he just he can't stay on the field sometimes. But when he's been on the field, top 10 fantasy production, have you found yourself with a lot of James Conner this offseason? Yeah, there's kind of a situation where, like, after the top 14 running backs go, after the top five receivers go, and after George Kittle and Travis Kelsey go, there's kind of like a, a like, who do you rank, like, 22nd overall? And I kind of just slid James Conner into that thing. And it feels early every single time I draft him at that round two, three turn. But I think the volume when he is healthy and when Big Ben is healthy is like in, in that like top 12 volume where it's really bankable, but just the, re, the injury risk with him and Big Ben, you kind of have to be skeptical of that. But there's just a point in this draft in like the early third round where you kind of have to like just take the plunge with somebody. Like all these profiles aren't perfect. Like there's obvious ceilings, but it's all also like these, these true negatives. And I think that James Conner is the guy that I'll just be hitching my wagon to just because I think that we're desperate for running backs and that the volume will be there. And I'm not confident that it, that we should be doing it, but who else? I like how we reached the point in the off season where you can go, you know, after the top 14 RBs, top two tight ends, top five wide receivers. And I know exactly like who you're talking about. Very like specific. Yes. So <laughs> it is, uh, it is late August for a reason. All right, moving on uh, running back. So obviously we saw, you know, the volatility with, the Fournette situation, how quickly, you know, a backup can be thrust into action. We got a couple guys that are, you know, consensus top eight, I would say, RBs across the industry. And there's a little bit concerned with the holdouts. And the first one, Dalvin Cook. So, you know, I was firmly on team draft Dalvin Cook as the RB5 throughout the offseason, new CBA rules and the Vikings history of signing their guys, you know, shortly before the year, you know, kind of led me to that. Things were looking good. He shows up at training camp, you know, some weirdness going on with his agent kind of disputing reports, but seemed like Cook was happy enough and he was going to be there. Now we get ESPN's Adam Schefter, the GOAT, who said recently that he would pause if he's drafting Cook right now in fantasy drafts. So, man, I've, I, I've done it. I've moved Clyde Ebersolaire ahead of Dalvin Cook, RB5. You know, I'm, I'm not saying to fade the guy to let him get out of the first round, but I'm no longer, you know, actively looking to make him the fifth player off the board. Uh, how, how have you reacted to this, you know, Sheffy's report that he would pause if Cook uh, doesn't get that contract by week one? Well, there's nothing in the CBA that's preventing him from holding out during the season. The only, the only thing that changed with the new CBA is that he had to report to training camp, which he did. There, there's a couple things that have happened with, with Dalvin Cook recently. The Vikings have basically um, shredded the rest of their cap space with the, the Yannick Ngakwe trade. And there's just kind of a situation where Dalvin Cook and, and the Vikings just cut off negotiations. I think that Dalvin Cook's probably asking for a lot of money. So I still think ultimately Dalvin Cook will be there for week one. But I do think the chances of this, uh, this being there being a holdout is increased over the last two or three weeks just because of the, um, the situation where they've ended the contract. They have traded for a player that deserves a lot of money. And then you have this Adam Schefter report. So I have had to move him down a little bit. I would be like probably desperate enough to draft him in the late first round, but I'm certainly not targeting him over Derrick Henry and Clyde Edwards Hilaire, Alvin Kamara, those types where I'm pretty sure that their work is just like, they're going to show up to work and they're going to get 20 touches and their offenses are pretty good. And I'm like, just really confident they're going to be RB ones. There's something where if Dalvin Cook doesn't show up for a couple of weeks that uh, all of a sudden Alexander Madison is, 
a top 12, top 14, top 15 running back every week. And I've had to move uh, Alexander Madison up like pretty substantially just because I think that there's a point where like Jordan Howard, like I, am I ever going to be like confidently starting Jordan Howard in the fantasy league? Probably not. So I just said, maybe I would be very confident starting Alexander Madison in this workhorse role and in training camp, he's been operating as the first team back. There is no Mike Boone. There is no Amir Abdullah kind of splitting, splitting carries like we saw last year. It would be the Alexander Madison show if Dalvin Cook would hold out. I still think the chances are low, but there is a chance. Just kind of how like the Leonard Fournette situation. We're like, I think the chances that he's going to be cut are kind of low, but there is a chance that he is cut. So um, I've had to move him down a little bit. And it's, yeah, it's becoming risky. We have risks there. And unfortunately, you know, we want to take on as little risk as possible, particularly in those top three rounds of the draft where, you know, you do not want to blow that first, second round pick, it, you know, and I, I do agree that with you though, that Madison would be the workhorse. And last year I was actually on the other side of things. And I remember arguing with Josh Norris about this almost every single week where I thought if Dalvin went down, there's a chance Abdullah could siphon away the pass down snaps. And we didn't see that because Madison and Cook got hurt in the same game. So we ended up being Boone and Abdullah. But, you know, I was on a Vikings pod uh, last week and you know, awesome beat reporter, uh, Matthew Collar. I asked him about Abdullah because I'm still, you know, thinking about the freaking fourth running back on the Vikings for some reason. And <laughs> I, I was like, all right, if Cook's not there and Madison's there, do you think Abdullah could, you know, take away the pass down work? And Collar actually said that the coaches have been super impressed with Madison's improvements as a pass blocker. And, you know, they really feel that he will be the complete, you know, one for one workhorse, even if Cook misses time. So, I have wasted a large portion of my life worrying about Amir Abdullah. Seems like, you know, he is not going to be uh, an impact. Yeah, Madison needs to be that guy. Dude, I want Madison, Chase Edmonds, Latavius Murray, and Tony Pollard anytime I can get them. I understand, you know, don't limit your upside by, you know, going Cook and Madison or whatever so you can get the other handcuff. I get it, but I feel like you look across the league and there's, again, Latavius Murray, Tony Pollard, Chase Edmonds, Alexander Madison. Okay, Kareem Hunt, but he has standalone value. Other than those five, like, I don't know that any uh, number two RB across the league would offer, you know, consistent top 12, top 15 production like we were expecting from Madison. Yep, and I've moved all those guys up. I just – I'm sick and tired of, like, Matt Breida. Like, is he going to ever be is, – like, is Matt Breida, Jordan Howard, are these guys ever going to be in a fantasy championship lineup the answer is no. Like, it just like, let's, let's stop with this. And uh, I, 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 made, I made up a rule on the Road to World podcast. If you didn't draft Chase Edmonds, that means you are not the smartest person in your league. So just draft Chase Edmonds. I think Alexander Madison, you can probably be saying similar things as the Chase Edmonds comment. So both of those guys are major, major targets, like the 10th round. I love that rule. I'm going to, I'm going to put that little post note above my uh, computer for the rest of the offseason. Good. All right. Last one, man, uh, Cincinnati Bengals. So Joe Mixon's contract situation didn't think it was too big of a deal. You know, it kind of flashed a little bit throughout the offseason, but wasn't a situation we were like actively monitoring entering training camp, but now we're getting some, you know, migraine news and, you know, some people out there don't really think Mixon's dealing with these migraines, or at least they're kind of hinting that, you know, getting a contract signed could uh, make them go away. So we don't really know what's going on. It's a tricky situation. Let's say Mixon does decide to hold out. Uh, what would you make of this backfield without him? And I guess, do you like think it's a potential uh, concern that he could hold out? 
Well, I get some migraines and I'm starting to think that it's all these LED lights that are contributing to my, <laughs> my migraine headaches. But yeah, so I, I think that there is a small chance that Mixon holds out. I don't think that there's as much pressure as with the Dalvin Cook situation where we've kind of been hearing some some major, uh, like Adam Schefter would have been like, I think kind of hinting at this situation. We would have also seen like the Bengals kind of been making some moves. And like just last week, they cut Rodney Anderson, who was like somebody that I thought was really good coming out of college, but he was just like, totally injured. They cut him, and I think that is was kind of underrated news just because that makes Travion Williams, who is also another productive back in college, he's kind of been dealing with some injuries as well, but he seems like the guy that would be the true insurance to Joe Mixon. I think that we've seen Giovanni Bernard, and I think I'm kind of just done with that whole project. I would rather be taking a flyer on Travion Williams, who was a three-down guy in college, and hopefully he would just unseat uh, Giovanni Bernard as, as the number two. So that would be like the deep, deep sleeper to watch would be Travion Williams. And Gio might just be almost in like Chris Thompson's shoes where his role might not even yeah. change if Mixon's not there. I understand in the past when Mixon and then before that Jeremy Hill was out, Gio got the three down roll, but that was when Marvin Lewis and that whole coaching regime was still there. I mean, this is an entirely new system now. I think they really do view Gio more as, you know, a scat back type. And we saw last year, like, okay, he got the targets, but it was truly Mixon's backfield in terms of rush attempts. So yeah, I'm with you, man. I think Travion Williams, I have Gio ranked higher just because I think, you know, okay, if everyone's healthy next year, obviously Gio's going to outproduce Travion, but they get hurt. I mean, Travion would actually be one of these RB2s that I'm not going to blow my entire fab on the guy, but he could actually, you know, give you some top 24 weeks potentially. Yeah. If, if Mixon were to miss games, I would certainly be uh, ranking Travion Williams ahead of Giovanni Bernard, probably as like a low end RB2 flex option. But I think that his three down profile makes him more intriguing at this point, just because we've kind of seen Giovanni Bernard. Hayden, thanks a bunch for coming on, man. Uh, everyone go follow Hayden on the old Twitter sphere at Hayden Winks. Hayden, what you got coming up uh, on the pipeline, Roto World ahead of week one? Yeah, so this, this season I'm going to be doing two columns, my fantasy forecast column, which is kind of like a, a matchups uh, column where I kind of have a lot of charts. So if you're into graphs and all that stuff, I'm your guy. And then also I'm going to have like this expected fantasy points column where you're kind of like looking at usage, not just like how many targets somebody got, but like factoring in how close they were to the goal line, how close they were to the sideline, how, how does like yards after the catch matter. So all those things will be over at Roto World. But yeah, outside of that, I'm just ready for the, for the season. Finally watch some games. Come on now. You and me both, man. Yeah. Everyone check out uh, Hayden's content has always done a fantastic job blend the analytics which, with what you see on film. That's what we're all trying to do, folks. It's, it's not a battle. We're, we're all a team here trying to just get smarter. Hayden helps with that. So thank you again, Hayden. Thank you all for listening. I'm Ian Hardis. This has been the PFF Fantasy Football Podcast. Make sure uh, if you're playing best ball for the season, go use uh, underdog fantasy code PFF, free entry in the million. And, you know, if you happen to take that down, remember, Hayden and I sent you there. So for Hayden, I'm Ian. Take care, everyone. Okay.